Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, where we discuss the dangers of bad doctrine in the modern church being equipped to stand for truth. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Listen, the the very idea that the kingdom of God is already here and growing is a false and unscriptural theology, and yet it is the theology that's held by many Christians today. In fact, this is the theology held by many Christians who are serving, and and please, you know, I was told not to caveat this, but I'm going to caveat it anyways. This is going to seem like I've, I've scripted this message based on events that have unfolded in the last week and all the rhetoric that's out there. This message was already being worked on long before this began to happen, so you guys know that. And so it is a tough message this morning, and I'm just going to say that, and and I'm going to step on some things I typically don't do, but I would just ask you to listen to what I'm saying, okay? Don't react to it. Just listen to what's being said. But this is the theology that's held by many Christians who are serving a government today, especially among those who are serving even in the present administration. They believe that we as Christians must take control of government and change laws so that the kingdom of God and the morals of the kingdom can be fully implemented first in our country and then ultimately in our world at large so that Christ can ultimately return and take his rightful place ruling over it all. There's an entire well-developed theology that promotes this idea and its influence on present-day Christian thinking, especially American Christian thinking, is far-reaching. It's known by a lot of different titles, but the most common name of which is the Seven Mountain Mandate. Maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're not familiar with it or with the formal title, but I can almost guarantee you that you have come in contact with the ideas promoted by this theology, and you've even possibly been influenced by it in your own thinking to some degree. Now, let me define it a bit for you. Those who ascribe to the Seven Mountain Mandate believe that in order for Christ to return to the earth, the church and Christians at large must take control of what they believe to be the seven spheres of influence. The seven spheres of influence in society, and we're to take control of that for the glory of Christ and for the full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, the seven mountains, which they also refer to as pillars, shapers, molders or spheres which they believe christians must control influence and establish are the following education religion family business government slash military right all part of one arts and entertainment and media These seven sectors, they believe to be the key areas of society that mold the way everyone thinks and behaves, which I can't argue with. These are shapers in in so many ways in our society. But because of this, they believe that for society to change towards righteousness and for God's kingdom to ultimately be established on the earth, they believe that these seven mountains must be transformed by Christians. The Seven Mountain Mandate says that it is the duty and it is the responsibility of all Christians to create a worldwide kingdom for the glory of Christ by invading, that's a term they will use, invading the culture, occupying these mountains, and transforming society. 
they they believe that we as Christians and as Christ's church on the earth have the principal mandate of dominating the world culturally, politically, and spiritually through the transformative implementation of biblical principles and moral laws. And even in its most extreme interpretation, through the implementation of the associated punishments prescribed in the Old Testament for violating those laws. You might laugh at that, but I had a conversation with a brother in the Lord not all that long ago who on Proverbs 22, verse 15, where it says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of correction will drive it far from him, went into an entire dissertation that this applies to society, and the reason we are the way we are is because we're no longer disciplining people in our society. Then at first I thought, well, what do you mean by that? And I kind of probed that a little bit. And he says, well, we need to do what the Scripture says. We need to beat it out of them. We need to beat unrighteousness out of them. And I thought I was having a conversation that I was just missing the point. And so I probed a little bit more, and the conversation became very clear. He went back to the 1700s when we had the whooping posts and everything else set up in communities. He said, we don't have the problems we have today when we had those things. And we need to do those things. And I just kind of told him, I said, well, I'm not looking to, you know, start putting chains on the trees out here to whip people into righteousness. But, but I'm just saying this kind of thinking is out there, and we laugh at it and we snicker at it, but the truth is it's there. Now, you might be skeptical of what I'm saying here and, and think that I'm overstating things, but this is more ingrained in American Christian thinking today. Not necessarily all the extreme forms of it, but the very premise of what I'm talking about is more ingrained in Christian thinking today than you might realize. While the formal title, Seven Mountain Mandate, might not mean much to many Christians, the influence of this movement and the influence of many people within this movement are all around you and even widely accepted by a growing number of undiscerning Christians. Now, you might be familiar with the name of a guy by the, and I don't name call, just so you know, but you need to know this for background on this, but there's, you might be familiar with this name, Lance Wallnow. Does that, does that ring for anybody? Lance is, is popular today. And in fact, his social media posts are growing in popularity today because he deals with spiritual political commentaries on this kind of idea. But what a lot of people don't realize that he's one of the preeminent speakers that promotes this movement. In fact, he's the one who actually coined the term Seven Mountain Mandate. He believes and he teaches that this mandate was given to the church by Jesus Christ when he gave the missionary commission to his disciples of go and make disciples of all nations. And what he suggests is that in large part, that commission had to do with societal transformation. And he then goes on to reason that since present-day churches already have a God-established strategic presence in every nation in the world, that it is our mandate to concentrate on influencing the systems, the societal mountains, if you will, within these nations where we live. However, from Mr. Walnow's perspective, the problem is that Christians are not currently influencing society outside the church to the degree that we should be. And as a result, he says that Christians have left the mountains susceptible to the gates of hell, which are spiritual portals, he would argue, of satanic and demonic influence and control over the kings, who he refers to as the influence shapers, of those mountains within those societies within those nations and and what has to happen from his perspective is that we 
as believers and as the church of Christ in this world must step up and move in proximity to the gates of hell by positioning ourselves in such a way where we can infiltrate and exert influence on these various societal mountains and on the influence shapers of those mountains. And since every believer can't position himself at the top of every major mountain, each of us must individually find our particular smaller peak within our local communities, within our spheres where we are, and be leaders in that realm, in the local community, in the school system, in local government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I, kn- I know that, that, that maybe hearing this seems, you, you, it can cause some skepticism, you know, I, I don't buy this. This is just some Christian conspiracy theory, but it's not. It's not. This is a very real, a very well-developed, and a very widely accepted theology, even though a lot of Christians don't realize that they're being influenced by it in their thinking and in their spiritual worldview. I mean, a lot of what this theology teaches are things that appeal to our righteous nature in Christ, right? I, I'm not going to argue that. There's things in this that appeal to our Christian righteousness, the nature of righteousness that Christ has put in us. I mean, think about this. Who of us doesn't want to see good and righteous laws implemented in our nation or to live in a society where morality is promoted and valued? We all do, right? I mean, that's that's inherent. When I became a Christian, I suddenly wasn't as interested in all the sinful things that I used to support in society. Things that were, you know, I would vote for for candidates that could give me my sin. Now, I don't do that. I don't want that. Uh, So who of us doesn't want that? Who of us doesn't want to be lights in the midst of darkness? Right? We want to be that. And by by our very witness as Christians, we want to be influencers and supporters of right things in our society. And, And who of us thinks that it's a bad idea for Christians to be involved in government or in the local community in order to represent right things? None of us. None of us would say that we, no, I don't want that. No, we do. We want these things. But folks, just because these kinds of things resonate with us and involve right things, it does not make this theology correct or something to be embraced, nor does it make the people who promote it people to be embraced and looked up to for our spiritual thinking. And, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are doing today. I am personally amazed by the lack of a Paul of biblically sound Christians and church leaders in particular who just a few years ago were warning their flocks about the dangers of the faith and prosperity teachers, who, by the way, in large part, fully embraced this particular theology because it fits along with it, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity comes along with a kingdom being established on the earth. But now there's even, and I no names mentioned here, but there's even a woman in the White House who's a notable leader in the faith and prosperity movement who's serving as the president's chief spiritual advisor. And, and suddenly no one's saying a word, just crickets. Why? I suggest to you it's because this theology is getting mainstreamed in our spiritual thinking. How many of you guys have heard of Bethel Church? Bethel is well known for a lot of Christian music that's popular today. Some of it is very appealing. Some of it's spiritually uplifting. 
What I'll bet many of you don't know is that Bethel is one of the leading proponents of what is known as the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. NAR is the term. It's, it's one of the leading proponents of this theology. NAR and its proponents like Bethel Church who promote, they're the ones that promote the seventh, the seven mountain mandate theology. It's, a, it's ingrained in it all. And, and they've completely abandoned biblical teaching on the end times, promoting instead the idea of Christians that they, that Christians have to set the stage for Jesus' second coming by achieving dominion over the world's systems with the belief that Jesus will only return to a world that mirrors the kingdom of God. Some of Bethel's music even subtly promotes this idea, even though many Christians miss it. Take, for example, the song titled, What a Beautiful Name It Is. It's the, the verse, there's a verse in the song that says, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. Now, without knowing the theology of this church movement or what they believe about these things, we'd likely not think much about what's being implied here. We'd likely interpret as saying that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, had heaven within him and, and brought it down in himself as he walked among us. And yet, when we understand the backdrop of this theology uh, of those who wrote this song at Bethel, that's what's real. What's really being communicated, albeit subtly, is that Jesus brought an established heaven on earth, which he did not. He did not. Now, in all fairness, and I just want to say this very clearly, I am not one of those people who's, who's just constantly looking for reasons to beat up worship music today. You know, if a song has solid lyrics, it's, it's theologically correct. The, the honest truth is, and some people disagree with me, and I, I respect that. But at the same time, if it's theologically correct in its, in its end, in the essence of what it's communicated, you know, I, I just don't have issues with it. And, you know, I often point to the fact that even some of the hymns came from bar songs, you know, that they took in the tunes and they just added words to them that were theologically correct. And there are people who wrote hymns who, who their theology, none of us would ascribe to or, or line up with. And so I'm not, I'm not one of those people who just kind of sniffs around every song. And, 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 you know, even with this song, what a beautiful name it is. When I first heard it, it's a beautiful song just is. And, and the better part of the song has tremendous words in it. And we started doing it here. But over time, a number of us began having a little check in our spirits about it. We didn't know why, but there was just something to the song that was causing us to say, there's, there's an issue here. And then when we started to look at it, we began to realize and we did some look into the background, we began to realize what was being communicated here. And, and again, you know, we made some changes accordingly. And, and because we realized it was a bit off, but that's the point. It's, it's, it's a prominent theology that is growing exponentially within Christianity, and it's creeping into the songs that we sing and, and play, and it's creeping into our spiritual thinking and reasoning and into our Christian worldview in very subtle, very subtle and often unrealized ways. But you know, I learned something in the Army. I often point this out. I'm a terrible, I am terrible with orienteering and map reading, which is bad for an officer in the Army, right? And that's why I was a human resource guy, not a combat officer. But you know what? I did learn this. It doesn't take more than a fraction of a degree to be off when you shoot that azimuth with your compass. If you're just a little bit off, when you begin, the, the off is only this much. But what happens over time is you keep walking down that road is you get further and further and further away from the correct path. And that's what happens with these kinds of things. And that's what makes this so dangerous. And at the bottom line of this is that at the core, this is theologically and wrong spiritual thinking. There, there's a worship leader right now who is touring the country. 
and he's gaining lots of positive attention on Facebook in particular, because it's the only place we really see a lot of things right now on social media. And he's supported by Christians who follow his posts there, and they see him as being used of God in bringing about a new Jesus movement and revival, similar to that which happened in the 60s and the 70s. And and in fact, a lot of Calvary Chapel people have become really excited about this guy and what they see happening with him because of their own roots in the Calvary Chapel movement, which was born out of the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s. Now, before I go on, please know that I long and pray for a spiritual awakening and revival in our nation and our world. There isn't a day that goes by that I'm not praying for that. That's just the truth. I am. And and there is nothing more I would like to see than for God to pour out his spirit on this corrupt and fallen world just one last time. That's been my prayer. Just one more time, Lord. Just one more time, because we know we're getting closer and closer to that day when he's going to call the church home. And we know what's going to happen in this world when that happens and, and the loss of life that will come. And, and so I'm just, my prayer has been for a very long time, Lord, just one more time. Would you do it one more time? I'd love to see that before your final judgment on this planet begins. And I have to some extent long believed that we might very well see this. It could very well happen before the rapture of the church because it's always been God's historical pattern to pour out grace before he pours out wrath. So it could happen. Some of the greatest revivals, if you go back and look at some of the greatest revivals in history, happened before huge world events where there was major loss of life. Some of the, one of the largest revivals took place right before the American Civil War. You know, we saw some of the, the, the proponents on the battlefields as chaplains serving. And even in the camps, there was revival still taking place as a result. And so I pray for this, I, and I want this. And, and, and really, you know, being a part of Calvary Chapel all these years and reading the history and knowing the history of how this movement was born, you, you know, I just, man, do I want to see a Jesus movement like the 60s and 70s? I absolutely do. Boy, that'd just be something to see, God moving in the hearts. And I've often said, you know, the hippies are gone, but the hippies ain't gone. The world's full of them. It's full of a generation of people who who have no bearing. They, they're, they're just faces, and they don't have any idea of why they're here. They don't know what they're searching for, but they're searching all the more and finding nothing. Hippies haven't changed. They've just changed faces and clothes, but they're still amongst us, and what an awesome thing it would be to see God reach in and just one more time touch them. But what I long for and I want to make this clear, what I long for is true, biblically-based, Holy Spirit-initiated awakening and revival, and not some flesh-driven version of it, some false flesh-driven version of revival and awakening. And at the risk of seeming judgmental, I will say to you that this man and his revival that he claims to be spawning is not a true biblical revival. It's just not. I mean, first of all, just just a couple of common sense evaluations that we do from Scripture. First of all, his approach is based on defiance and rebellion, which conflicts with the Word of God. It conflicts with it. He is, in many cases, taking his ministry specifically to cities where this virus is spreading and raging at its worst and defying public laws and mandates and gathering crowds all in the name of Jesus and revival and in the name of the right to gather. 
This isn't even about living in a community where you believe the restrictions imposed by local officials are clashing with your obligation to worship the Lord. It's not even that. But this is about leaving your own community and, and in the name of Jesus, going to someone else's community and defying civic laws established there. There is no basis in Scripture for doing anything like that. None whatsoever. And God will not honor that which contradicts his own word. And what does his word say? First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You cannot willfully disregard biblical mandates of Scripture and then claim God is sending revival. It doesn't work. Second, his approach is based on things other than the teaching of God's Word. Those who lived through the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s will tell you that while music and fellowship and other things were an awesome part of what God was doing and what was happening in the midst of that revival that took place, the simple teaching of God's Word what was the predominant thing that was taking place in almost every sector of Christianity, and the hippies were being transformed by it. Men like Pastor Chuck Smith stood on the beaches and taught the Bible verse by verse to the hippies and all who had listened, and mass salvations began to happen. <laughs> you know, I was just sharing as, as Chris was playing a, a, an old Maranatha tune in there, you know, a lot of people don't know, but some of those old choruses that we sing today, you know, came out of the, the Jesus movement, and they're connected to Calvary Chapel, in fact. Some of them were, came right out of there, and one of the reasons they came out of there was because, of course, hippies came in with all their instruments and their, their guitars and everything, and Pastor Chuck wanted to reinforce the message of Scripture, and so he said, well, why don't you take these songs and put them, you know, these passages, and put them to Scripture? And so you have all these choruses that we sing today, not, not some of the modern stuff, some of the stuff that dates back that I remember back, you know, in Custer's day, but no, I'm kidding. But back in the 70s and the 80s, when I first came to Christ, you know, that we were singing, but they came because they were based on scripture and they literally were scripture that we were singing and we were doing it to memorize it. So it came based on scripture. This revival, it was nothing but about the scripture being taught. You know, there were programs like the Lay Witness Mission Program that began springing up. I used to be a part of that in the early days of my salvation, where teams of believers would go into churches that were dead and dying, and, and they taught and they preached God's word, and they gave witness from their own lives of what Christ had done, and, and churches were revived. Dead churches were revived. The Jesus movement was truly a revival that was born out of and established upon God's word, not on things other than that. All true revivals, I'll say this again, all true revivals are born out of and established upon God's word and not on other things, regardless of how spiritually edifying those other things might seem to be. But a close and honest examination reveals that this is not the case with what's happening with this guy and his supposed revivals that are taking place, nor has it been the case with many supposed revivals that have claimed to be taking place in recent years. In fact, instead of the Word of God being preeminent in these events, it's being minimized and replaced by other things. I believe that we're a people who are living in a day very much like the days that God spoke of through the prophet Amos. 
Here's what Amos 8, verses 11, 12 says. See if this doesn't resonate. Amos 8, verse 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. There is no greater famine than the spiritual famine that comes from an absence of God's word. There's no greater famine, and the absence of God's word never leads to an awakening and revival never leads to it. It leads to nothing more than a desperate state of starvation where, where people try to fill their spiritual void with all sorts of junk that excites the flesh, but never satisfies or truly sustains or gives birth to real spiritual life. That's just the truth. By the way, I have to tell you, a former student of mine who's an assistant pastor these days in a church down near Baltimore, when I was out at Scotland school, he was, boy, I hope he's listening to this. He was, he was a terror. The dude was a terror. That's just the truth. He almost scared me out of the job. He's just so tough. But he came to Christ and his life was transformed. And today he's an assistant pastor. It's interesting. I was on Facebook this morning and just kind of scrolling through. And he says, you know, the Lord's been speaking this verse to me. This is the state of our nation today. This is the state of the church today. This is the spiritual condition today. He said, it's Amos 8, 11, and 12. I wrote him and I said, brother, I think the Holy Spirit's trying to say something because that's in my message today. So third, this guy's theology is broken. He is a NAR proponent and a product of Bethel Church. He's seeking to bring about revival as a part of the seven mountain mandate, seeking to invade and occupy the religious mountains to set the stage for cultural transformation that, so that Jesus can return. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.